Chapter 19, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 19, Part 2. We beg the careful attention of thoughtful, moderate men to the fact that although the income tax was paid wholly by the few, yet the masses upon whom it had no direct bearing urged its repeal, because it was proved in practice that the honest were assessed while the dishonest escaped. Thus we get one more proof that the masses can always be trusted to act fairly and to correct injustice. Since 1866, twenty years ago, when the national revenues from taxation amounted to a sum equal to seventeen dollars, three pounds eight shillings, drawn from each man, woman, and child in the country, they had fallen in 1880 to less than seven dollars, twenty-eight shillings, and of this more than a dollar, four shillings, per head went to reduce the debt. The taxes are collected in America much as in Britain, about equally from foreign imports and from home products, although the recent rapid repeals and reduction of internal taxes in America have somewhat disturbed this division. In 1880, for instance, the foreign products contributed more than the domestic, foreign giving $190 million, 38 million pounds, and the domestic $125 million, 25 million pounds. If it were not for the seemingly immovable determination of the people not to permit the manufacture of whiskey and tobacco to escape special taxation as articles, the free use of which should be discouraged, this difference between the production of taxation upon home and foreign products would soon be much greater. For to sweep away the entire Department of Internal Revenue and thus reduce the number of government officials and free the citizen entirely from their supervision is a temptation hard to resist by the American people. The Cost of Government We have seen that in 1880 the general government was in receipt of about $335 million, say 67 million pounds, but notwithstanding great reductions made in taxes, both tariff and internal, the receipts of 1882 and 1883 reached 400 million dollars, 80 million pounds. As the official figures for these years are obtainable, we shall use them instead of those for 1880. How, then, does the Republic get rid of her 80 millions sterling per annum, a revenue about equal to that collected by the British government? Here is the record for 1883. First, of course, for interest upon the national debt, this required $50 million, £10 million. And what, think you, is the greatest charge upon the state? For what does the Republic spend most money? Republics are proverbially ungrateful, you know, so says the monarchist. Well, this republic certainly does not spend five millions of dollars per annum upon a single family and its appurtenances, nor lavish fortunes at one vote upon its high officials or members of an aristocracy. Still, it spends more money in pensions to the soldiers and sailors who served it in its hour of need than upon any branch of the service, more than upon army and navy combined, more than the interest upon its debt more than upon anything else. To reward these men, not one man or a few high officers alone, as is the case in Britain and elsewhere in Europe, 
but every man, private as well as commander, in settled proportions as to rank. The Republic spent in 1883 no less than $66 million, 13.2 million pounds. The democracy may be trusted to insist, when they have the power, that the poor private who fought shall not be neglected when the state dispenses its rewards. I heard Mr. Cohen, the radical, nay, the Republican member for Newcastle, in a speech in the House of Commons favoring the grant to Wolseley and Seymour, hold up to scorn the American Republic for the shabby manner in which it treated its servants. The difference here is just the difference between a monarchy and a republic, between the rule of the people and the rule of a class. In the monarchy, the officers are unduly rewarded by their class, who are in power, whether called liberal or conservative, still their class, while the private, who has few or none of his class as legislators, is neglected. In a republic, the first care is for the masses in army or navy, the privates and their widows and orphans. The officers come after, though both share liberally. So, in all legislation, the good of the millions first, the luxuries of the few afterward. This statement is worth emphasizing. The Republic gives more each year as rewards to the brave men and their widows and orphans who defended the integrity of the nation when assailed, than she thinks it worthwhile to expend in maintaining all her military or naval forces. If Republics are, as a rule, ungrateful, at least we find a notable exception to the rule in the case of the greatest republic of all. The truth is that republics are only prudent in giving to the rich few and prodigal to a fault in lavishing upon the poorer masses. This is a failing which leans to virtue's side. Time after time, since the close of the war, the pension roll has been enlarged and the payments increased. It seems as if the people could not lavish enough upon or sufficiently testify their gratitude to their soldiers and sailors who have been injured or have become disabled in their service. Even as I am correcting the proofs of this chapter, the House of Representatives has passed by a vote of four to one an act to increase the pensions to soldiers and sailors' widows 25%, from $8, pound 12 shillings, to $10, two pounds. To the charge that republics are ungrateful, the reply is that the one republic gives more beyond their regular pay to its citizens who have served in army or navy than all the other governments of the world combined. Next in cost comes the War Department, which, although of ridiculously small dimensions compared with that of other civilized nations, I regret to chronicle cost in 1883 no less than $49 million, 9.8 million pounds, which was exceptionally great. The cost averages about $40 million, 8 million pounds. The Navy Department absorbed $15 million, 3 million pounds. As the Army consists of but 25,000 men, we cannot look for any reduction there till the vast unoccupied territories are peopled. A strong armed police force is required to keep the Indians in order, and the almost equally troublesome aggregate of restless spirits from all lands who naturally gravitate to the semi-civilized life which precedes the reign of law and order. In the States, as distinguished from the territories, the American rarely sees a man in uniform whose profession is the scientific killing of other men. 
The war expenditure, one is delighted to record, embraces the improvements of harbor and rivers, and upon this highly useful work many of the officers are constantly engaged. The Engineer Corps has rendered exceptionally valuable services in this department. An annual appropriation is made for improving rivers and harbors, $6 million to $10 million, 1.2 to 2 million pounds, and charged to the War Department, which sum should fairly be deducted from war expenditures, for this is not for destructive purposes, but emphatically in the interests of peace. The American people annually spend upon the 300,000 Indians scattered over the land about $6 million, equal to $20, 4 pounds, per Indian. They are as kindly treated as practicable. A commission of well-known philanthropic men of national reputation is appointed by the president to supervise all matter relating to these poor, unfortunate tribes. The success of the Indian policy may best be judged by the fact that out of the total number of 310,000, no less than 66,000 are reported civilized, the proof of civilization being that they pay taxes, and of all the proofs possible to adduce, we submit this is the most conclusive as to their civilization. The political economist, at least, will seek no further but rest satisfied. It is indeed surprising that one-fifth of all the Indians have abandoned their nomadic habits and embraced civilization. It is clear that the real, live, war-whooping Indian is being rapidly civilized off the face of the earth. We shall soon search as hopelessly over the prairies for the noble redmen as we should do over Scotch moors and glens for the Rob Roy of Scott. Under the head of miscellaneous come a thousand and one items of expenditure which embrace everything not under heads before given. The total is about $68 million, about 13.6 million pounds, in 1883. The principal items are for the agricultural, meteorological, and educational departments, and the various bureaus which, by their varied and useful functions, cause such astonishment and admiration in foreign visitors to Washington. As the Republic pays every official who renders service, it may be interesting to compare the cost of this plan with that of the monarchy, which depends upon the gratuitous services of its legislators. Here is the account. The Republic. The President. $50,000, £10,000. The Vice President. $9,000, £1,800. 74 Senators. $5,000 or £1,000 each. Total, $370,000, £74,000. 325 representatives, $5,000 or £1,000 each. Total, $1,625,000, £325,000. Total, $2,054,000, $410,800, the Monarchy The Queen $3.1 million £619,379 Prince and Princess of Wales $600,000 £120,000 Other Members of the Royal Family $600,000 £121,000 Total $4,300,000 860,379 pounds. 
members of the cabinet are paid about the same in both countries. I have known well-informed Britons who believed that the cost of government in America was greater than their own. The figures given prove that the amount paid by the Republic for the 400 officers and legislators who form her governing body does not amount to half as much as the monarchy squanders upon one family which has neither public duties nor official responsibility, and which sets an example of wasteful and showy living to the injury of the nation. One scarcely knows at which to wonder most, the fatuous folly of the people in permitting this great sum to go to one family, which is really one of the scandals of our age, or that any well-educated family possessed of even ordinary sensibility can be found to take from a people, many of whom are sorely pressed for the necessaries of life, this enormous amount of their earnings and waste it upon their own mean and coarse extravagance. No fact more clearly proves the corrupting tendency of privilege or caste upon those unfortunately born under it. They must grow callous and unmindful of all but themselves. It will puzzle my American readers to imagine how such enormous sums can possibly be spent upon one family. Perhaps one item will shed light upon it. Sir Charles Dilke has charged that public funds are squandered to the amount of £100,000 $500, per annum upon yachts for Her Majesty's use, while, mark you, she has not been half a dozen times a year in a yacht during her entire reign. The sum spent by this model queen for useless pleasure boats alone is greater than the American pays his president and vice president, the cabinet officers, and all the judges of the Supreme Court combined. One marvels, when such abuses are revealed, that any member of the royal family is safe in open day. We should expect that public indignation would at least concentrate in one universal hiss. How long would Americans tolerate an abuse like this, think you? Turn the rascals out, would again be the cry, and the delinquents would know better than to stay to be driven. The next Cunarder would have them booked, under assumed names, bound for happier climes. But the story does not stop here. This family finds in every marriage of their children a fresh plea for demanding money and at every death they saddle the nation with the funeral expenses. The royal mother of her people cannot be induced to support her own children during life, or even to bury them decently at death, as long as the public can be further bled. All this is no reflection upon the royal family of England, for all other royal families do the same. They are as good a royal family as anywhere to be found, Certainly the queen is personally one of the best women who ever occupied a throne. It is the fault of the system that such callousness is bred in those who would otherwise be good people. The system, not its victims, is to blame. The royal family is only one of many evils with which monarchical institutions infest a state. The Financial Reform Almanac states that within the last 33 years, the dukes, earls, and marquises, with their relatives, the inevitable brood of royalty, have taken from the exchequer more than £66 million, pounds, $330 million, an average levy of two millions sterling. 
being as great as the entire sum spent by the government for the education of the people. John Bright told the people that the government was only a system of outdoor relief for the aristocracy, and he was right as usual. It is well for the American people to get a glimpse now and then of the blots of other lands, that they may duly appreciate their own comparative purity. Whenever an American is met abroad with the assertion that the government in the Republic is corrupt, he can safely say that for one ounce of corruption here, there is a full pound of Poix in Britain, for every job here, twenty yonder. Just look at some of the jobs. The Prince of Wales is colonel of this or that regiment, and draws salaries for duties he does not pretend to perform. He has many mean modes of drawing money from the public. He is made a field marshal. One brother gets a high command in India. The Duke of Edinburgh gets command of the Channel Fleet. The Duke of Cambridge, although commander-in-chief, does not scorn to draw a salary as Ranger of Richmond Park. And royal favorites by the score monopolize sinecure positions. One nobleman gets £4,000, $20,000, per year for walking backward before Her Majesty upon certain occasions, and so on through a chapter of jobs, so long and irritating that no American could patiently read through it. When the democracy gets firmly in the saddle, we shall see a change in all this, a purifying of the Aegean stables of monarchy. The corruption then exposed will surprise the Republican. I do not believe that there could be found today a family whose head is in public life and honored by the Republic which would accept and use, as the royal family accepts and uses, the inordinate sums granted to them. The tendency of Republicanism is to promote simplicity and a higher standard than that of showy living. President Cleveland, in his inaugural message, expresses the feelings of the people when he says, quote, We should never be ashamed of the simplicity and prudential economies which are best suited to the operation of a republican form of government and most compatible with the mission of the American people. Those who are selected for a limited time to manage public affairs are still of the people, and may do much by their example to encourage, consistently with the dignity of their official functions, that plain way of life which among their fellow citizens aids integrity and promotes thrift and prosperity. Close quote. The monarchy thinks show grand, the republic votes it vulgar. To sum up all, the government of the people in 18 years has reduced its debt at the average rate of $55 million, 11 million pounds, per annum, and the interest charge of its debt in that period to one-third its cost. It has abolished and reduced taxes from time to time until there remains of internal taxation only the taxes upon whiskey and tobacco, stamps, etc. The income tax has gone with the others. Such a record the world has not seen before. The answer to doubters of the stability of the democracy, like Sir Henry Maine, is here. December 1885. Republican 3 percents. 103 and a half. Monarchical 3 percents. 99 and a half. Were the consuls of America perpetual like those of Britain, and not redeemable at a fixed date, their value would be still higher. The triumph of democracy is palpable in many departments. In education, in population, in wealth, in agriculture, 
and in manufactures, in annual savings, as we have seen, it stands first. But to the conservative mind, surely the last domain in which the democracy could be expected to excel even Great Britain is that of credit. It has been the boast, one of the many proud boasts of the dear parent land, that her institutions were stable as the rock, as proved by her consuls, which stood preeminent throughout the world. Now comes her republican child, and plucks from her queenly head the golden round of public credit as hers of right, and places it upon her own fair brow. It has been my privilege to claim many victories for triumphant democracy, but surely the world will join me in saying none is more surprising than this, that its public credit stands before that of Great Britain, and first in all the world. End of chapter 19